the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 1-12. Seeing the crowd, he went up on the mountain, and he sat down. His disciples came to him, the Beatitudes. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friends, you're looking for love in all the wrong places. Some of you are old enough to remember the Waylon Jennings song. And it is true. Friends, we are looking for love in all the wrong places. There are things that we think are going to fulfill us. There are things that we think are important that this world tells us are important. There are things that the culture tells us are essential. And there are things that society tells us will bring us happiness. And so we look for love. We look for fulfillment, we look for purpose, we look for meaning in those things. And the problem, Jesus says here, is you're looking for love in all the wrong places. Thus, Jesus' call at the beginning of his ministry and throughout his ministry is to repent. And as we've talked about, repent literally means to change your mind. You need a different way of seeing this world, a different way of understanding yourself and your behavior, a different way of looking at other people, a different way of living. You need to repent. You need to change your mind. And that is exactly what Jesus offers us here in the passage that Mary read for us this morning. A new way to look at the world. As we continue our study through Matthew's Gospel, we've seen Jesus baptized and tempted We've heard him call followers to himself and begin his ministry of healing and teaching. And now we come to chapter 5. And in chapter 5, we have the first long collection of teaching that Matthew records for us. And this teaching is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Because as we see, you know, Jesus went up on the mountain and he began to teach his disciples. So I just want to begin by noting that, that that's the context. It says that Jesus went on the mountain and he taught his disciples. So while there was a crowd that was listening, Jesus' primary teaching in this passage in the next three chapters in the Sermon on the Mount was to his followers. These are words to his followers that he spoke knowing that the world was listening in as he spoke them. And Jesus begins by telling his followers, you've been looking for love and purpose and fulfillment in all the wrong places. You've been valuing the wrong things. You're pursuing the wrong ends. And so he begins by offering us, his followers, a new world view. A different way 
of looking at the world. And he offers his followers a list of eight statements that we've come to call Beatitudes. Now, we're going to take two weeks to examine these eight Beatitudes because there is so much for us in these eight short aphorisms. And so we're going to find that the Beatitudes actually break down quite neatly into two sets of four. Into two sets of four. Because, again, you'll notice Beatitude 4 and Beatitude 8 both bring us to the same place, righteousness. Beatitude 4 is for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Beatitude 8 is for those persecuted for righteousness. So there's two sets of four, both of them ending with a statement about righteousness. And what does righteousness mean and what is it? And we'll talk about that. But we should also note the Beatitudes are framed by a promise of the kingdom of heaven. Beatitude 1 is verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the first Beatitude. And the final Beatitude, the eighth Beatitude, is in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So these eight statements, whatever they are, are framed by a promise of the kingdom of heaven. Friends, this is how a citizen of the kingdom of heaven looks at and understands the world. Jesus is saying, my disciples, my followers, if you're going to follow King Jesus, if you're going to live as a citizen of the kingdom that I am bringing, you need to repent. You need to think differently. You need to look differently at this world. You need to look at the world through a new set of lenses. And here are the lenses. So notice these eight statements. They're not about directive. They're about perspective. The eight statements that Mary read for us, friends, there's nothing in there you must do. These aren't commands or tips for living or self-help advice. These eight statements are in no way practical. They're about postures. These are not about our output. They're about our outlook. The eight statements here are not about our work. They're about our worldview. Jesus says these statements are meant to reframe everything. Now, the Beatitudes are far more in line with Hebrew wisdom literature than any kind of moral or ethical teaching. In general, when we look at the Old Testament, we find that there were priests and there were prophets. And the priests and the prophets, they dealt with religious or ethic or moral concerns. But then we also have in the Old Testament a great body of wisdom literature written by the wise men, the sages of the time, talking about how do I live within right accord in the world that God created? Helping people think biblically, how do I live in this world? And so Jesus is teaching here really like one of the great sages. In fact, not just the great sage. Jesus has come not just to bring us wisdom. He is wisdom. And he says, this is how to live in right accord with my coming kingdom. This is how to see the world as a citizen of my kingdom. These are the lenses through which you, as a disciple, a follower of me, should look. This is a kingdom worldview. And that's what the Beatitudes are offering us. And notice, every one of the Beatitudes begins with the phrase, Blessed are. Blessed are. Now, we've come to call these Beatitudes, and if you look up Beatitude in the dictionary, which I did, this is what it says. A Beatitude is... Supreme blessedness or exalted happiness. 
supreme blessedness or exalted happiness. Now, Jesus isn't just here as some kind of a pitch man on TV for an infomercial going, these things will make you feel happy. They'll cure all your problems. You'll lose weight and clear up your acne. You know, this is not some kind of, you know, shallow happiness. It's not the watered-down, shallow happiness that we talk about. He, he's not talking about subjective feelings here that, that come and go depending on circumstance. Jesus is ta- not talking about what we subjectively feel. He's talking about objectively are. He, he says, these are the happy, the blessed ones. This is the good life. Do you want to look at this world and understand what it means to live the good life and how to live the good life? You want to, you want to judge and be able to look the way that I look? At who's blessed? At who's living the good life? These. These here, these will frame your understanding. So Jesus, the Beatitudes, they, He gives them, because, but friends, they turn our, upside down, our understanding upside down because they're opposite to really what the world desires. So the first thing that we notice is that Jesus comes and He goes, you've been looking at this world and you've been looking for love in all the wrong places. And so I'm here to redirect you. I'm here to give you a new set of lenses by which to judge the world. I'm here to tell you what you should be valuing and looking for. I want you to understand the world from a kingdom mindset. Because, you know, what are the Beatitudes of this world? I I read one person who summarized the world's Beatitudes and said, Jesus says, blessed are, but what if the world told us blessed are? The world would say, blessed are the rich, for theirs is the kingdom of pleasure. Blessed are those who feel good about themselves, for they shall be confident. Blessed are the aggressive, for they shall control the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for recognition, for they shall be noticed. Blessed are the demanding, for they shall receive what's coming to them. Blessed are the sexually liberated, for they shall be their own gods. Blessed are the scheming, for they shall be called children of the powerful. Blessed are those who are praised by this world, for theirs is the kingdom of now. Those are the Beatitudes of the world. That's what our culture says it means to live the good life. Those are the blessed ones. Those are the lenses through which the world looks and judges and decides what is good and bad and how to live. That's where the world says we're going to find fulfillment and purpose and blessedness and love. And Jesus climbs up the mountain. He sits down. He teaches his disciples. He says, no, you've been looking for love in all the wrong places. Instead, verse 3 Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, in the Old Testament, to be poor meant to be in literal material need, but gradually it came to have another understanding. Because if you think about it, the poor and needy had no hope. They had no refuge. Poverty came to have spiritual overtones because these people had to throw themselves upon the mercy of of God. They had to entrust themselves to God for protection and provision because they literally had nothing. And so when we read Hebrew wisdom literature, it's understood that the the poor person, unable to save himself, looks to God for salvation, whereas the rich person, well, the rich person has no need. The rich person can trust in themselves and their riches and their strength and their ability and their power for protection and provision. They have no need for God. So Jesus starts and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, 
those who realize they can't save themselves. To be poor in spirit is to confess your spiritual poverty. It's to say, I am spiritually bankrupt. The message, which is a paraphrase of the Bible, says, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. Author Dallas Willard says, Blessed are the spiritual zeros, the spiritually bankrupt, deprived and deficient, the spiritual beggars, those without a wisp of religion. So you see, friends, that's where we need to begin. The poor in spirit. And interestingly, that's also where all of our 12-step programs begin. Alcoholics Anonymous and all of the 12-step programs begin with step one. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Friends, that is what it means to be poor in spirit. We are powerless. Our lives have become unmanageable. So we humble ourselves. We confess that powerlessness. We admit we have no hope unless somebody else saves us. That is where the Beatitudes start. That's where the Sermon on the Mount starts. Because, friends, that's the place where we all have to start. That is the place where every one of us must start. Because until you and I reach the point where we confess we are poor in spirit, until we admit that we are powerless and empty, until we admit we have a problem, until we admit we have a need, we're not ready to receive the solution. And friends, that's why so many people reject Jesus. And that's why so many of us struggle to follow Jesus because we have to be humbled and admit we're powerless and, and Friends, that can be the hardest thing to do. You know, Pastor Tim Keller famously said, our problem is we think we're middle class in spirit. You believe that God owes you something. He ought to answer your prayers and bless you for the many good things you've done. Even though the Bible doesn't use the term, by inference, you can say that you are middle class in spirit. You feel you've earned a certain standing with God through your hard work. I mean, friends, we would never use that phrase, I'm middle class in spirit, but we kind of believe that far more than we believe we're actually poor in spirit. You know, many of us believe that, you know, we've, we've at least earned a little place at the table. You know, we've contributed some. I mean, we may not be perfect, but at least we're not as bad as others. We're, we're kind of middle class in spirit. But friends, Jesus says if you desire the kingdom of heaven, you can only come as one poor in spirit. It's like we sang when we sang Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, I look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. It's like we sang when we sang Just As I Am. I come to Him broken to be mended. I come wounded to be healed. I come desperate to be rescued. I come and I'm empty. I come to be filled. Friends, the kingdom of heaven is not about earning or deserving. It's about grace. It is about pure grace. And the only people who are ready to receive pure grace are those who come poor in spirit. So friends, are you here weary striving, afraid that you don't measure up? Hear the good news. Hear the gospel. It's about grace. Are you here today entitled, self-righteous, proud, angry, middle class in spirit? 
friends, it's about grace. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus goes on in verse 4, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know, Jesus reminds us, friends, it's one thing to confess your spiritual poverty. It's another thing to mourn and grieve over that. If the first beatitude calls us to confession, the second beatitude calls us to contrition. You know, the problem is, we don't want to feel bad. We don't want to feel bad about ourselves, and we don't want anybody else to feel bad about themselves. We don't want anyone, especially ourselves, to hurt or experience pain or sorrow for anything they've done or failed to do. We value feeling good over being good. Friends, this culture values feeling good over being good. So what do we do? We deny and we downplay. We live our lives denying what we know we've done. We do everything in our power to avoid discomfort, sorrow, mourning, or pain. We numb ourselves with drugs, alcohol, TV, Netflix, hobbies, relationships. And we live in denial of our poverty of spirit, lest we have to mourn over it. Or we downplay it. Or we downplay it and we go, well, it's it's really not that bad. I'm really not that poor in spirit. We, We redefine what it means to be poor in spirit. We reinterpret it. We lower the bar. Or even better, we eliminate the bar altogether. And then I don't have to feel bad about myself or what I've done. We would rather feel falsely good than face the truth. But friends, we have to mourn the poverty of our spirit. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Self-esteem, healthy self-esteem is important. But friends, healthy self-esteem is based upon truth, not upon denial. Healthy self-esteem is based upon truth, not upon a lie. And friends, denying the truth and refusing to mourn over the wrong in our lives will eventually destroy us. The truth is, pain is a gift. Pain is an important part in our lives. The pain that you feel when you touch the hot stove causes you to change your behavior and remove your hand. Otherwise, your hand would simply be consumed by the stove and destroyed completely. And in the same way, mourning in our lives causes us to change our behavior lest we end up destroyed by that behavior. This is what 2 Corinthians 7.10 means when it says, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Friends, godly grief, mourning over your poverty of spirit, produces repentance and change that leads to salvation. You remove your hand from the stove and your your hand is saved. So blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. Friends, mourning, repentance, and forgiveness all go hand in hand. I mean, if a people or a culture or a church don't understand what it means to mourn, if we choose self-esteem over truth, we will never, ever know the comfort of true forgiveness. Friends, you can only know the comfort of true forgiveness if you first mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And friends, I promise you, there is no greater comfort than the comfort of being forgiven. Psalm 32 is part of Hebrew wisdom literature. And in that psalm, King David invites us to sing 
this truth about forgiveness. In Psalm 32, verse 1, he declares, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. But friends, for those who don't confess, for those who don't mourn, David speaks in verse 3 and says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Friends, unconfessed sin, to not mourn over it, destroys us. Denial will not bring relief. Only confession and mourning will. And so David celebrates in verse 5 of that psalm, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Church, there is no greater comfort than the comfort of confession, of mourning, and of forgiveness. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Do you know that comfort? Do you need to know that comfort? Jesus goes on in verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Friends, there is no more maligned and misunderstood and mocked statement or concept than this one about meekness. Because our world thinks that meek equals weak. Philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche saw this verse as embodying the slave morality of Christianity. Humorist Ken Hubbard said, It's going to be fun to watch and see how long the meek can keep the earth once they inherit it. Friends, this culture believes that meek equals weak. And there is no place for weakness in this world. But there wasn't a place for weakness in Jesus' world either. Many of the the Jews at the time of Jesus' coming, they were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for one who was going to be a conquering hero, hero who was going to show up in their midst and help them overthrow those pagan Romans who controlled the whole world at that time. And then Jesus shows up in the scene. They hope he's the Messiah. And then he starts spouting some nonsense about meek inheriting the earth. And what are they supposed to do with that? When Jesus speaks about the meek inheriting the earth, he's actually quoting for us from Psalm 37. Psalm 37 is another one of the Psalms that we have that is part of the wisdom tradition. And it offers us a contrast between wise and the wicked living. The righteous and the wicked both desire to possess and dwell in the land. They both seek the blessing. They're both seeking to live the good life, but they do it very, very differently. And if you were to read all of Psalm 37, you would find that the wicked, they plot, they scheme, they default on debts, they use raw power to gain advantage. But then Psalm 37 tells us the righteous, the righteous trust in the Lord. They're blameless, they're generous, they're upright, they're peaceable, they meditate on God's law. They are meek. And the central truth of this psalm is Psalm 37, verse 11. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Now, Jesus' original hearers would have been familiar with this psalm. And so when he said the meek will inherit the earth, they would have thought, oh, Psalm 37. And they would have remembered the contrast 
between the wicked and the righteous. And they would recall that those who trust in their own power, those who use their power to advance themselves at the expense of others, those whose power is brash and indiscriminate, those who appear to prosper in this life and in this world, those who it seems will gain the whole world, they don't end up inheriting the land. The first two Beatitudes say, Blessed are the poor in spirit and those who mourn. They're both Beatitudes that look at ourselves. We confess, we feel contrition, we admit, we mourn. Those are attitudes about how I've become. But this third Beatitude, Blessed are the meek, turns our attention from how bad we are to now look at how great He is. Because the meek are not fixated on themselves. They're fixated on Him. They see themselves in light of Him. Meekness is not about weakness. It's about trust. They admit that they don't have the power, the strength, the ability. They mourn what they have done and what they've become. And so meekly, they look to Him to deliver. They don't fight and struggle and try to deliver themselves like the wicked. They trust in Him. We're not going to gain control or receive forgiveness or be given our daily bread or inherit the earth or live the good life by our power, by our grasping, by our manipulation, by our good works, by our religious performance. The meek are those whose power is submitted to God and who trust in Him for salvation and not themselves. Those are the ones who live the blessed, the good life. Those are the ones who Jesus says will inherit the earth. Friends, who do you trust? To whom are you looking? And finally for today, in this first set of Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now friends, when you're hungry, when you're hungry, what do you do? You look for food. Because when we have a hunger, what do we want to do? We want to satisfy the hunger, so we seek after that which will satisfy the hunger. So when you're thirsty for something, just like the soda Sprite tells us, you obey your thirst. And you go grab yourself a Sprite, I guess. But when you're thirsty, you seek something that will quench that thirst. So, friends, our hungers and our thirsts motivate us. They drive us to seek after something. If I'm hungry for food, if I'm hungry for success, if I'm thirsty for recognition, if I'm thirsty for power, if I'm hungry for satisfaction, I pursue these things. Friends, our hungers and our thirsts focus us, they drive us, they they cause us to go. And Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So what does Jesus mean by righteousness? Now remember, when we come to a word that we might not be sure exactly what it means, we can get a good idea by looking at the context. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, uses this word righteousness four times. We find it here, and then we find it just a few verses later in the eighth beatitude, which again says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, Whatever this righteousness is, after which we are to hunger, once we have it, it says, we'll be persecuted for it. So, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, consider that all the first three Beatitudes lead up to this hungering and thirsting, don't they? The first three Beatitudes are really descriptions of emptiness. 
I'm poor in spirit. I have nothing to give. I'm mourning that I have nothing. I'm looking not to my own power. I'm looking to His power. Poor in spirit, mourning meekness. It's the confession that we are empty, bankrupt, powerless, followed by mourning and sorrow and repentance. We look and we see God. We look to Him. And now we seek to have that emptiness filled. We hunger and thirst to be filled with that which we cannot fill ourselves. Friends, don't hunger and thir- we don't hunger and thirst after something we already possess. I mean, think about it. You don't hunger and thirst after something you already possess. If you've just eaten, you're not hungry. So you're not hungering anymore. So whatever this righteousness is, friends, we don't have it. We don't have it. We're supposed to hunger after it. And in fact, Jesus is actually critical of people who think that they already have it. Just a few verses later, about a dozen verses after the Beatitudes, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, he says to the Pharisees, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, friends, it's not explicitly in the text, but this is a biblical use of air quotes. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. Jesus is using spiritual sarcasm here. There is such a thing. The Pharisees think that they're righteous. And they think because they're righteous, because they're full, they don't want the righteousness that Jesus is offering. So Jesus is critical of those who actually think that they already have it. He says, no, you need to hunger and thirst after it. Hunger and thirst after true righteousness. Because, friends, whatever it is, it is not ours. In fact, a little bit later on in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 6, verse 33, we'll hear him say, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Friends, we have to hunger and thirst after righteousness because we do not have it. The first three Beatitudes say you're empty, you're powerless. Mourn over that and look meekly to Him. But then hunger and thirst because, friends, He promises to fill you. Romans chapter 3 lays it out for us, friends. As it's written, none is righteous. No, not one. Friends, what is righteousness? Righteousness is rightness. It's rightness with God. It is to be in right relationship with Him. It's characterized by right conduct before Him and right relationship to others. But none of us are. None of us are righteous. Our relationship with God is broken, and it's evidenced by the fact that our relationship with one another is broken. Friends, that's the poverty of the Spirit that's discussed. And we mourn in the second beatitude over the fact that it is that way. And in the third beatitude, meekness, we look to God's power to fix what we cannot fix. We come to Him empty and unrighteous, and we hunger to be filled with a righteousness that is not our own. The Apostle Paul continues in Romans chapter 3, and he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, so apart from what you can do, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Friends, this is the Gospel. The good news is that Jesus Christ is our righteousness. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the hungry and the thirsty might be filled. Our relationship with God can be set right again, and He can be at work setting right our relationships with one another. We cannot fill ourselves. We must hunger and thirst to receive. 
And so the Apostle Paul declares in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, that he wanted to know Christ and to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of his own that comes from obeying the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness from God depends on faith. And so it is, friends, in just a little while, we're going to close by singing, Now my heart's desire is to know you more, to be found in you and known as yours, to possess by faith what I could not earn, all surpassing gift of righteousness. Friends, Jesus is our righteousness. The poverty of our spirits, the mourning of our sin, the meekness of our souls should cause us to hunger and thirst for Jesus. Because, friends, He is our joy and our righteousness. And church, do you hunger after Him? Do you hunger after Him? I mean, we've all heard the phrase, having a healthy appetite. I mean, think about it. When you're sick, the last thing you want to do is eat. You don't want to see food. You don't hunger after anything. But once you're hungry again, what happens? Your appetite comes back and you develop a healthy appetite. And friends, if you don't have a healthy appetite today for righteousness, is there something making you sick? Is there something that is killing your hunger? Are you so stuffed full of junk food from this world that you're no longer hungry for Him? Friends, today He invites you Let Him renew your hunger. Let Him heal what sickens you so you develop a healthy appetite for Him. Let Him deliver you from the empty calories that you've been filling up on. Let Him redirect you away from the petty hungers that this world tells you are so important so that you might hunger and thirst after Him. Let Jesus make you hungry and then let that hunger focus you and drive you that you might come to Him for He is our righteousness and through Him alone can we be reconciled and forgiven. So we go to Him. We go to Him who is our righteousness. We seek Him. For blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because friends, they will be satisfied. Are you satisfied in Him? Let's pray. Father, make us hungry. Make us hungry for Your righteousness. Make us hungry for Jesus Christ. May we hunger and thirst after Him and Him alone. Help us to confess our spiritual poverty, to mourn over it, to meekly look to You who are our strength and our power. And Father, make us hungry. Make us hungry after Christ. In His name we ask. Amen.